Good morning. Take a copy of God's Word and let's uh, turn to Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, you can find that on page 815. We will be in starting in verse 16 this morning. Last Sunday we finished Revelation. feels like I'm walking away from an old friend. But the plan uh, now is for me to join the others in preaching through Matthew. And what a challenging passage uh, we must consider this morning. Not that it's, it's hard to grasp. I mean, there is one issue we'll have to sort through uh, towards the end. But for the most part, uh, the main point is clear. Uh, the real challenge comes in seeing the cost of following Jesus. Uh, To this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been preaching the kingdom of God and then proving how the kingdom uh, was present in him. Uh, The Old Testament had expected this great day of reversal, right, where the blind would receive sight and the lame uh, would walk and the oppressed would know freedom. And then in comes Jesus and step by step, Jesus not, is not only proclaiming the kingdom with great authority, see the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but he also demonstrates his authority by healing the broken and delivering the oppressed. In other words, people are seeing glimpses of this divine reversal happening right before them. The long-awaited king has come, in other words. And then not only that, Jesus starts spreading his kingdom, sharing it with others. He starts with a a new 12 from Israel. He commissions 12 disciples and entrusts them with the same message of God's kingdom. And they're supposed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and spread the news about God's kingdom. And Jesus also gives them authority to heal the sick and to raise the dead and cast out demons, the same thing he was doing. The disciples become an extension of Jesus' own mission. And so to embrace their message was to embrace the king himself and all that the king is bringing with him. I mean, who wouldn't get excited about this Jesus? Look at the success he's having. Look at the crowds following. The long-awaited king is here. Who wouldn't want to follow Jesus? Well, many aren't very impressed. Indeed, many oppose Jesus. And so in chapter 9, verse 3, we start seeing glimmers of this. This man is blaspheming, they say. Chapter 9, verse 11, why does he eat with tax collectors? Chapter 9, verse 34, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And so as Jesus is going about his ministry, you can begin to feel the opposition rising against Jesus himself. And now Jesus takes his disciples aside and says, you need to expect the same for yourselves. You will preach. People will witness the power of my kingdom in your midst. But know that in the process you will suffer for my name's sake. He tries to help them understand that sharing in Jesus' kingdom doesn't mean prosperity now. It means sharing in Jesus' sufferings now. 
So hear what our Lord says in chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is the word of the Lord. Initially, I planned to uh, preach through verse 25, but then I noticed a pattern to Jesus' teaching here. Uh, Four times in a row, Jesus describes some kind of opposition, and then he teaches us how to respond to that opposition. So the first comes in verse 16. He says, you're going to be like sheep in the midst of wolves, and then he teaches, so be wise. And then in verse 17, he says, men will deliver you over. And then he teaches, don't be anxious. And then again in verse 21, brother will deliver brother. And then he teaches about endurance and then fleeing to the next town. And then the last comes in verse 24. But then that steps, that sets up a longer section of teaching on fear in verses 26 to 31. So, so what I'm going to do is teach verses 24 to 31 next Sunday as a unit and then focus today on verses 16 to 23. And I'd like to approach these verses by answering three questions. First, why does the opposition rise? It's clear that the disciples will face great opposition here, but why will the opposition rise Implicitly, we find our answer in the words, I, I am sending you. So Jesus commissions them. Jesus is their master. They are not taking their orders from the world anymore, but from Jesus. And then explicitly in verse 18, we hear this. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. For my sake. And then again in verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. For my name's sake. So when you look at passages throughout the New Testament where this idea of living for Jesus' name uh, or or living for Jesus' sake appears, what you will see is that it means at least three things. It means that you acknowledge Jesus' authority. He is Lord, is your confession. 
It means you publicly identify with Jesus in word, meaning you not only confess him in baptism, you speak of him to others, you proclaim his truth in the public square. It also means you represent Jesus in obedience. So his word determines your moral choices. So what's the point here? The, the opposition rises against the disciples first and foremost because of their allegiance to Jesus in all circumstances. It's not for being conservative. It's not because their worldview overlaps with Western ideals. It's not suffering because of pompous attitudes or a lack of common sense. We're talking about opposition because you acknowledge Jesus' authority, you publicly identify with Jesus in word, and you represent Jesus through obedience. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19. You read it earlier. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, meaning you you followed its ways, you embraced its ideals, you, you did things the way the world does things, well, then the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So let's pause here just for, for a second. If opposition rises... Because of Jesus, we're we're pressed to consider why we might not experience much opposition in our own lives. And I want to be careful here, because the New Testament is clear, not all Christians will experience the same degree of opposition. Also, in God's mercy, severer forms of opposition are restrained in some settings, settings like our own. Like 1 Timothy says, so that we might live a peaceful and quiet life. I also don't ask this question so that you go out and pursue persecution. No, we pursue Jesus, whether persecution comes or not. What I'm asking us to consider is whether the lack of opposition is because we look too much like the world. Is it the case that people find no reason to divide around Jesus because we're not bringing them Jesus? Something we need to weigh and consider. At the same time, perhaps some of you experience all kinds of opposition. Your motto is that Jesus came to bring a sword. And that's true. He did. But likely what you need to consider is whether people oppose you because of Jesus or because you're using Jesus to support positions you would have believed anyway without him. You see, it's possible also for people to trick themselves into thinking that they're being opposed for Jesus' sake when really their commitment hasn't developed from a relationship to Jesus at all. And I've run into this as a pastor, sitting down with men who believe themselves to be great martyrs because of all the things they're saying. But when you ask them, how's your Bible reading go? How's your prayer life? 
It's negligible to non-existent. As Jesus' disciples, we must keep Jesus at the center of all we do. We must keep a vibrant relationship with Jesus first and foremost. If we are opposed, let it be for his sake and his sake alone. A second question, what can the opposition lead to? What can the opposition lead to? How bad can it get? Well, he starts, verse 16, comparing their mission to sheep out in the midst of wolves. That's telling. Everybody knows sheep don't stand a chance before wolves. I mean, they're like a pillow-wrapped steak with legs. The wolves are fierce and hungry. Earlier, Jesus compared false teachers to wolves. Chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. But it soon becomes clear that Jesus has a bigger group of wolves in mind. Verse 17 includes leaders of the Jewish synagogue. Verse 18, it's governing authorities. Verse 21, it can be your own family members. Wolves represent anyone hostile to Jesus and his followers. And sometimes these wolves will surround you and leave you with no way to escape. So we see that in verses 17 to 18. Verse 23 speaks to other instances where you can and you should escape. But here in verses 17 and 18, they leave you trapped before authorities. Jesus says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. We know what flogging involved. It's when you're beaten with a whip. And Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Pilate also had Jesus flogged. And so the disciples here, what we're seeing is, you're, he's saying, you're going to follow in my footsteps. You're going to follow in the steps that I'm about to take when I'm flogged before the authorities. Verse 18 adds, You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And what's interesting here is that Jesus includes opposition that they're going to experience among Gentiles when earlier he commissioned them to Israel specifically. And so Jesus is here preparing them for a mission that, yes, begins with Israel, but will eventually extend beyond Israel. The Gentile courts are going to get involved. We see this happen in Jesus' own trial and crucifixion, and then we see it happen for the disciples, right, throughout the book of Acts. But I don't think that's the hardest form of opposition. The hardest comes in verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So how bad can the opposition get with your dearest loved ones? Right? The child that you nursed. The dad that used to bounce you on his knee when you were little. The sibling that you once did every, everything with growing up says they will partner with others 
to have you killed. This is the loyalty that Jesus is calling us to. One where you can, you can look across the room and you can see your child. You can see your daddy or your mama. You can see your sister and best friend delivering you over to the authorities. And in that moment of testing say, I still choose Jesus. I love him more. In that moment, will you be able to recognize that Jesus has given you a greater family? In that moment, will you be able to recognize that he has given you a greater home? In that moment, will you be able to remember that he has given you a greater father? And say, I still choose Jesus. Does your love run that deep for Jesus? I don't know what the opposition will look like for you this next week. I mean, will Jesus' lordship mean that you have to speak truth into conversation when, when your other extended family members just want you to shush about Jesus? Just keep your mouth quiet at this family gathering about the scriptures. Perhaps it will mean you show up to work on Monday and everyone's boasting about their wild weekend. But when it comes to you, they're, they're surprised. They're surprised, like 1 Peter 4, 4 says, when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you for it. Now they, they ostracize you and they don't include you anymore. Perhaps a friend of many years informs you that he's getting married, but to your dismay, it's to another man. And your allegiance to Jesus requires you to speak truth and say, I cannot support this. This is not marriage. And instantly, he makes you the enemy. Perhaps you were once close to family members, but they have distanced themselves from you because you questioned whether some of their political stances have compromised the Christian faith. I'm sure we could think of many more examples that we might encounter in our own context. But in all of them, Jesus requires our devotion at the highest cost. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it this way, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To follow Christ is to take up the cross. The only way to follow Jesus is the way of the cross. But that's not all Jesus tells us. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't just tell us why the disciples will suffer and what they will suffer. He, he also teaches us how to respond in the suffering. And, and some of these words hold out some precious promises. And that brings us to our third question and one that will take the rest of our time. How, how should disciples respond when opposed? 
Well, for starters, we must respond with wisdom and innocence. Wisdom and innocence. Look at verse 16. He says, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And at first glance, you know, Jesus' comparison might surprise us. Serpents aren't always viewed in the best of light. I had a mom that see a garden snake, and it'd end up in 12 pieces. We don't have great opinions about snakes. But you know, doves weren't always viewed positively either. Hosea 11 says they're silly and without sense. But Jesus here is focusing solely on the positive traits that are associated with these two creatures. The word behind wise is sometimes translated shrewd or prudent. You stay alert to the various factors that are at play. You're aware of the traps that people might be setting for you, and you respond to them with insight. So factors in this case would include these wolves plotting to destroy the sheep. And how do we see that playing out in the Gospels and and, and Acts? Well, enemies are trying to trap Jesus in his words, and and they slander Jesus in in public so that they start winning a crowd, right? And they they sometimes lied later to, to get the disciples arrested and... Some of them beat them and threaten them to stay quiet, and they'd arrange false witnesses or manipulate the justice system. We were in Revelation recently, right, and we saw how the beasts would work the whole economy so that Christians couldn't buy or sell anymore. And so when you're in that Context, it takes wisdom to navigate these various factors and respond in a way that keeps the gospel moving forward and also with clarity. And then all the while, there's also this temptation to repay a wolf evil for evil. He's saying, glean the wisdom of the snake, but you better not bite. Jesus says we must keep ourselves innocent or pure. Some translations have it. It's much like what Peter says in chapter, uh, chapter 3 of his letter, verses 15 to 16. Y'all talked about some of this in Sunday school this morning. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you're arrested when you're slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame right everybody can look around and say oh come on guys this he's not like that right he's innocent of these charges and it becomes clear in that moment what you're really being arrested for, right, or maligned for. It's for Christ, for the gospel. You, that's why. And we're not without help here, right? Jesus walked this path before us. How often do we see his wisdom shining when the religious leaders attempt to trap him in his words? 
And the way he navigates their questions and he always refocuses it around the the real issue at hand and, and then the way he keeps the gospel of the kingdom clear throughout. And there are also times when wolves try to pounce on him, but to no avail. Authorities try to arrest Jesus, but he eludes their grasp, right? It's not that he's afraid to suffer, but that he's more interested in completing his father's will first. Or later they they try to accuse Jesus of breaking the law, but consistently he's innocent to the point where Pilate, right, this pagan governor can, can see through the situation and he says... I find no guilt in this man. Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of wisdom and innocence when facing opponents. And he walked this path before us, not merely to give us an example, but also to save us and and, and to enable us to walk this path after him. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So no longer doing things the way the wolf-like world is doing them. We live to righteousness in all circumstances. Think also of Paul preaching in Ephesus in Acts chapter 21 and Demetrius, right, has hated what Paul's gospel means for his money and his fame and his gods. And so Demetrius stirs up a riot and they drag some of the disciples into the theater and everyone is going nuts in, the, in this place until the town clerk stands up and shuts everybody down and points out the disciples' innocence and everybody goes home. Or when Paul is later arrested for no good reason and he, and he navigates the situation even using his Roman citizenship at times So he gets a right to a fair trial. And this affords him the opportunity not only to prove his innocence, but to proclaim Christ to hundreds more. So what you're seeing is this pattern in Jesus and the apostles of any situation they came to, they always were navigating with this wisdom and acting innocently so that the the gospel was front and center, clear as can be. Another way we must respond to opposition is is with this uh, confidence that our Father will help us. With confidence that our Father will help us. Uh, When opponents drag the disciples before governors and kings, verse 18 indicates that it's it's not by accident. He gives us the purpose to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That doesn't mean we pursue persecution for witness, but that following Jesus as witnesses may mean we're presented with unique opportunity to bear witness before powerful people, and it will be by God's design. He will have put you there as his messenger. But look, too, at at what the Lord promises in that situation. Verse 19, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I mean, what an intimidating set of circumstances these are. Can you imagine the thoughts? Like, how will I defend myself? 
before these wolves. What should I say if, if they ask this or if they ask that? Do I tell them where the other Christians meet? What's their legal process? I'm so hungry. I haven't slept for days. What if I say something stupid? I'm full of grief because I don't know what's going on with my kids at home. Jesus says, don't worry in that moment. Don't worry. God, the Trinity, will help you in the mission. The Father will bear witness to the Son through the Holy Spirit speaking through you. Now, to be clear, this is not an excuse for teachers in the church to get lazy with preparation. Jesus is speaking here to a unique circumstance. In Luke 21, he says it this way, Settle it in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom with which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And don't you see him doing that throughout the book of Acts? Peter stands up. Stephen stands up. Paul stands up. And constantly the Lord is giving to his disciples a mouth and wisdom with which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is Jesus' promise for his disciples. So take courage when you see that promise come true in the disciples' lives, when you, when you see the promise come true later in the mission of Paul, take courage in the way he has come through for so many others as you read the stories throughout church history. Should the path of obedience bring you before authorities, the Holy Spirit will strengthen you and he will enable you to speak as you need to speak. He will enable you to exalt Christ. So you don't have to fret about tomorrow. You don't have to sit here today and wonder, what if, will, I, will I abandon Jesus in that moment? Well, well I don't know what, what I would say. Would I be bold? Yeah, because Jesus said the Father will give you His Spirit and make you His mouthpiece in that moment. You don't have to fret about tomorrow. He will be with you, beloved. And you will boldly speak in the power of the Spirit. God doesn't fail His people. Don't you love how Jesus also says that it's the spirit of your father? Your father? When you belong to Jesus, God becomes your father. So he relates to you like son or daughter. Earlier in, in, uh, in this book, um, Jesus points out how your heavenly father knows your needs, right? What you need to eat, what you need to drink, right? What, what you need to wear. He's aware of these things even before you even ask. So he knows your daily needs. He also knows the needs you will have when you are on mission for Christ. And he will care for you. He won't forget you in your moment of distress. He will will give you himself in the spirit. Some of you may be very fearful of speaking to others about Jesus quite apart from persecution like this. But the consistent pattern throughout Scripture, and we see it here too, that when when you step out in obedience, the Father gives you all that you need to stay faithful in whatever comes. So trust Him to provide for you. And then finally, endurance is key, but that doesn't always mean stay. Endurance is key, but that doesn't always mean stay. Again, 
The closest of kin may oppose you and do their worst, but, but even then we mustn't compromise our witness. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, so Jesus' mission here we're seeing requires endurance. I mentioned before, you know, acknowledging Jesus' authority, publicly identifying with Jesus in word, representing Jesus through obedience. Endurance means that you do all those things even when the opposition is pressuring you to quit on Jesus. But listen to the promise again. The one who endures to the end will be saved. We just finished our series in Revelation and how great it was to think and meditate upon the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem. The beauty and the joy and the peace of the new heavens and the new earth will be worth every ounce of suffering. A new creation without evil. A new city full of joy in God's presence. New comforts that heal and satisfy, take away our sorrow. New, new life that's abundant and eternal. That's why Paul can say elsewhere that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to, worth to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. But let's qualify this endurance further. Enduring as Jesus' witness does not always look the same in every circumstance. Some instances of endurance will include getting arrested and and then using that opportunity to, to preach. That's verses 17 and 18. At other times, endurance includes fleeing persecution to take the gospel elsewhere. Verse 23 says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now that last part isn't so easy to interpret. Uh, You know, is Jesus saying here that he's just going to catch up with them later till the Son of Man comes? See you in a couple weeks. Not going to finish this work till I see you again. I don't think so. Because the disciples never endure this sort of persecution until after Jesus' resurrection. Others hear, you know, before the Son of Man comes and immediately think, well, surely it's talking about the second coming. Jesus' return. And if you read it that way, then you must take going through the towns of Israel to represent a perpetual mission to reach Jews even after the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And that work won't be finished before Jesus returns. I don't think that works either, though. In the context, the towns of Israel seem to be the towns to which Jesus sends the twelve specifically. You, you the twelve, will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so that leads others to associate this coming of the Son of Man with with two other events. Either Jesus' coming in resurrection or Jesus' coming in judgment on Israel in AD 70. In both cases, Daniel 7.13 stands in the background where the Son of Man comes, right? His coming is a coming to the Father to receive His heavenly exaltation, to receive His heavenly authority. And His coming is, is the picture of this, the Messiah receiving authority to bring His kingdom on earth. 
So according to Matthew's gospel, that happens at the resurrection, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Matthew 28, 18. But there's also these hints, right, in Matthew 24, that part of Jesus enacting his authority will include a coming in judgment on Israel in AD 70. And that would allow for the disciples to have begun experiencing the persecution earlier, including the mission to the Gentiles. And it would also explain why there's such urgency to go from city to city to city to city in Israel, because it's about to fall. I'm about to come in judgment. In either case, though, the, the point about Jesus is, about the Son of Man coming seems to be that the, the point about it's a point about the kingdom coming soon. He's telling them, you will bring the gospel of the kingdom to the towns of Israel, and some in those cities will harden themselves against your message, and they will persecute you to the extent that it's better to flee and look for fruitful work elsewhere. But keep on preaching the message, because I will soon have authority, and my kingdom will prevail, and this city is going to fall, but I'm going to open the gates wide for the Gentile nation. So keep spreading the message from town to town. Time is of the essence, in other words. The king is coming. And sometimes that will mean that you purposefully withdraw from the place of hostility to bring the gospel elsewhere where it's better received. Don't we see these patterns in the early missionary work of the church? On numerous occasions, disciples stay because the Lord has opened a door for effective work. Sometimes they're arrested and must bear witness before these authorities. But on other occasions, they scatter to, to other towns, like in Acts chapter 8, and they go and they, they preach the gospel there, right? Stephen is stoned, and the church scatters because of the persecution, and it, but it says, and they're going from town to town preaching the gospel. Or there's a, the occasion where they lower Paul down in a wall, in a, city, in a basket, right? City wall, they lower him outside so he can escape to the next town. But the consistent pattern is that whether they stay or whether they go, what's always consistent is the urgent advance of the gospel. So Christians should be slow to find fault with others who flee persecution. Endurance is the key here. Endurance to Jesus and what Jesus wants you to do in those situations. And that doesn't always mean stay. Yes, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it's also true that we can rejoice and be glad, as Jesus said, when others revile us and persecute us because they treat the, treat the prophets that way. But persecution isn't something to be pursued or provoked. And sometimes it will mean fleeing to preach the gospel elsewhere. Either way, I think the question for us is, are we being consistent to bring the gospel of Jesus' kingdom into the lives of others? Is there this bent to our lives that stays concerned with the onward march of the gospel? I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. You can just see his... Uh, the way he thinks... 
when he says, um, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and to save some of them. Just that word, somehow. Somehow i got to get the gospel to them. Somehow I'm going to find a way to make this message go forward and save my friends, my kindred. That should be the bent, the same bent of our lives. If on this side of the resurrection Jesus has taken the throne, if his kingdom is in some sense already here, Do we have any urgency about us to bring the gospel to others? You know, a judgment is coming, but it's way worse than the one Israel experienced in AD 70. And we have the only message that will save people and make them right with the Lord. It's the same message that saved many of you. May God find us faithful. To bring his message to others, no matter the cost. We are sheep in the midst of wolves. But we have a great father, a great savior, a powerful spirit to help us. Let's pray. Father, you are good and glorious, and we thank you the grace of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Each of us who know you can look back in the moment when somebody brought us the word of truth and how thankful we are for you sending your messengers who spoke boldly in the name of Christ. Whether it was a friend or a parent when we were young, grandparent, someone we heard speaking at an event, you used them, Lord, to bring us to faith. Now make us faithful in bringing the same message to others, no matter the opposition we might experience. And I pray that perhaps even the opposition we do experience this week might afford us an open door for the word. Somebody might come and ask us to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Make each person here faithful to speak as he ought to speak with wisdom and innocence. Christ we pray. Amen.